Since the dawn of civilization, humans have endeavored to become stronger and faster. From the invention of the wheel to today, history is replete with men and women who have applied innovation to fitness. But in the past 50 years, while millions have made livings in this industry, a select few have taken that passion to the highest level, creating brands and products known across the globe. Today we celebrate these pioneers, for they are the Gym Class Heroes. All right, welcome to Gym Class Heroes of Fitness, presented by Athletic Business Magazine and the iClubs Conference, November 20th through 22nd, 2013, in San Diego, California, where you will get strategies for independent clubs, learn a lot from independent thinkers, and... Uh, and get ideas you may never even knew were possible. And uh, and actually, I'm, I'm kind of excited. Our, our, our guest today, um, Scott Gillespie, is uh, is somebody who um, you know, I've spoken with a number of people about you, Scott. And uh, and um, and roundtables and group discussions seem to be a big part of of sort of your your operational success. Am I right? Absolutely. I I started roundtable experiences got to be 15 years ago. I'm, I'm with my second one right now. And, you know, to be in a room full of um, pretty high-level industry operators um, who are willing to be totally open and honest and share their successes, um, speak frankly about their failures, allow us to hold each other accountable and explore new ideas, um, frankly, has been probably one of the greatest um, growth opportunities for me in the fitness business. It's been wonderful. Yeah. And uh, and I loved. I was talking, uh, speaking with Blair McHaney about you, and uh, and he was saying you guys have uh, you, it, very lucky having found each other as a great resource for, uh, like you say, bouncing off ideas. And because I mean that's how Jose and I work. We sit in an office and we look at each other and we're like, what if? What if we did this? What if this happened? What if we created a podcast for the fitness industry? I mean things like that. And it seems like uh, you kind of get a real thrill out of that. Well, we do. You know, Blair and I, uh, it's, it's an interesting kinship. Um, our clubs are somewhat similar. Uh, our mentalities about operating our businesses are similar. And there have been countless times where after a day full of roundtable discussions, we've sat down and cracked a beer, a bottle of wine, and been talking about things. And I'll share with him something I've done in my club. He says, you won't believe it. I just did something almost like that last month also. And three or four times, we've come up with almost identical strategies. <laughs> And, and that evolves to if we didn't do one from the other, he says, can I steal that? And I say, absolutely. Can I steal that? Sure can. And uh, so, you know, we, we shamelessly use each other's quality material and, uh, and build on it and, uh, and then share with our roundtables and they use it and, and build on it. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful evolution. Gotcha. How much wine? Uh, <laughs> never enough. Never yeah. enough. He said that's so your thing. You're a, you're, you're a wine guy. You know, you one of those questions that uh, you shared earlier was, uh, "What is my vice?" And it is, it is good red wine. Really, and, and red over white. Absolutely. Okay. And, and so, antioxidants, you know. <laughs> and and no screw tops, I'm assuming. Uh, rarely. Rarely. Well, only when necessary. So, uh, what is the uh, what's the best bottle of uh, wine that uh, we should be drinking that nobody knows about? Oh God. Uh, the, the last best bottle of wine I had was a Maury St. Denis, uh, a Burgundy from 2005 uh, from France, which was um, pretty damn good. And is it in the under $9 rack? 
Sorry. <laughs> no, okay. By the way, I feel for a uh, for a fitness podcast, we're definitely starting this the wrong way. <laughs> Back to business. Back to business. So, the gym market is it's sort of hyper competitive at the local level. Are you ever worried that someone in your local market is is going to hear about one of these great ideas that you and Blair came up with over a 2005 bottle of wine and, <laughs> and use it against you? You know, that's a great question. I think there is a certain advantage to being the initiator of any of any new program or plan. Um, it's the, the followers have a disadvantage, um, and and our market in particular is is not a great market. Um, you know, I, I evolved here after being in eight clubs throughout Southern New England. Uh, we're in Southern Maine. Um, you know, I, I call this a sea level market, um, and I don't think we're going to be a target of any large. Uh, entities, and I think the smaller operators um, uh, might not have the resources to do something that we're doing in this market. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily think about competitors as much as I think about what can we do to be excellent at what we do, and and how can we bring in people and guide and support them, and then get out of their way to do the things they do really well. And truly believe that if 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 we're putting 100% of our efforts into creating new programs and learning about how they work on the way and using the experiences from previous programs we've launched and learned from, that it's going to be really hard for someone to come in and compete with us on that same program level. Um, so I, I don't think about it in terms of giving information away that might come back to haunt me. In fact, any information we can give away to help grow the industry, I think you know, it, a rising tide does um, help all boats uh, find better water. So I, um, I, I'm not really concerned about that, but uh, that doesn't mean I don't think about competitors coming into the market to try and nip away at some of the members we currently serve. So it's for you, it's really about uh, execution as opposed to just a lot of great ideas. Yeah, you know, I, it, we've have, we have a million ideas. Um, it's the ones that are appropriate and that fit within our vision and fit within our belief system and values. Uh, and fit the customer that we think best suits us. So the idea is the starting point, but how to get it in front of a member uh, in a way that they um, enjoy, appreciate, uh, experience positively, are willing to talk and brag about, um, and then let it grow virally from there, um, that's something special. Uh, and yeah, it takes execution. Mm -hmm. so, so what's the best idea that you've ever had, but the worst execution of that idea? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we know we're in the midst of one right now. It's a, it's a great question. This, this growing trend of small group training, um, of putting you know, 4 to 10, 12, 15 people together with a trainer, um, it's getting so much press these days, um, and so many people are being so successful with it. And um, you know, we've had a very successful personal training program. Um, and it was a natural evolution to move towards that for a couple reasons. You know, we, as a company, three or four years ago, really identified what makes us different and better and one of the things that we pride ourselves on and found has been a, a, a real well it, it's been a differentiator is our ability to connect members to members through the process you know we believe that moving makes life good but moving together makes it great that's one of our founding principles and so w what could be better than bringing small groups of people together to exercise um, and for a lesser fee than working with a personal trainer uh, and it, it seems as if it would be a win-win-win. And our expectations of what that program could or should have been 
fell way short of where we were able to bring it. That doesn't mean it didn't succeed. We weren't able to reach you know, a few hundred members, but we had grandiose ideas of it transforming the way the inside of this business would look and work. Um, and it, it became another solid program, but not one that dominated the club like I thought it might. Um, you know, the, some of the challenges there and the things I think we could have executed differently or better um, would have been the space. Um, you know, we're, a, we're a small multi-purpose club or we're a really big gym. And um, how we utilize our space and, and where we dedicate space to certain things um, is a challenge. We get a lot of stuff in a little space, which is a positive in some light, and it's a, it's a challenge in others. Um, but, you know, if, if you talk about programs and ideas that we wanted to launch that we think we could do better, that's the first one that pops into my mind. Gotcha. What, what about the other side of that, which is what was, the, uh, what was an idea that you were like, there's no way this is going to work, and then you went to execute it, you executed flawlessly, and it turned into a, 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 a positive for your business? Yeah, I don't know if I have one because I don't think I would have jumped into this is an idea that will never work uh, <laughs> mindset. But the ones that, uh, that grew so much more than I thought they could were um, eight years ago when we made a strategic decision to focus on group exercise. And, and we, were at a, we were serving at that time what I, was probably the industry average 12 or 13 percent of our members in a group exercise class. And knowing that this world of, uh, of, of low-priced competitors was coming quickly, that we would have to differentiate and become something more than just a place where people came and rented access to equipment. Um, and so, you know, we would add some classes, and we chose to work with body training systems. Um, and Rich Boggs, uh, who uh, the founder of that company, also was in my roundtable with Blair McKinney. Um, and has uh, uh, shared a couple of those bottles of wine with us. But, you know, we expected to double that and, and maybe increase it a little bit more than that and, and serve some of our members in a different way. And that has evolved to we now serve 75, I'm sorry, 47% of our member visits in group exercise. So we have quadrupled um, the number of people who are participating in a group exercise class um, and can see pretty measurable changes to retention, to member engagement, um, and it's interesting that during that period of time in the 2005 to 2008 world where the talk of the town was how do we compete against low-cost competitors and club after club um, is seeing decreased revenues and decreased members and during that time we saw two Planet Fitnesses open within five miles of us um, and during that time we increased our membership base and we increased our, our member usage and our revenue stream and it was interesting to see the usage in the club shift from being equipment based to group based so that was one of those programs that just grew beyond my expectation excellent well I want to go back uh, and I now that I know a little bit about your club and your philosophy and what you guys are doing um, I want to know a little bit more about you and what got you to this point of where you are in your club so uh, what, what's your background? I mean, were you always, uh, did, were, were you always going to be in the gym industry or, I mean, as a kid dreaming uh, of opening your own you know, club in, in, uh, Seiko May? <laughs> oh gosh, this is, uh, yeah, this is a two bottle of wine story. Um, uh, <laughs> but I'll go quick. Um, in college I was an athlete and, and I was very active and, uh, sought a place to train, um, because the university fitness center that I was at, I went to the university of Rhode Island and played soccer there. Um, wasn't as great uh, as I wanted. So I found a local fitness center and joined it. Had a great experience with the woman who sold uh, me and my, at the time, girlfriend a membership. 
um, who's by the way now my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and within a week of joining that club, she offered me a job because um, I was studying athletic training and uh, was learning all about um, fitness exercise, rehab, sports medicine, and uh, offered me a job as what back then was called a fitness technician, making $5 an hour. Um, and what better place could I find than a fitness center to get paid? And so I started with that company, which turned out to be a pretty growing company at the time, Health Tracks International, who at the time was operating I think a dozen clubs in southern New England, they had found a, a very nice model of helping racquetball and tennis club owners convert their clubs to multi-purpose clubs, adding fitness group exercise, adding a sales process, a marketing function, uh, real business functions to uh, two industries, racquetball and tennis, that were struggling back then, and this is the early, mid-80s. Um, and, uh, and for me, that evolved to uh, um, kind of a career progression that HealthTracks offered, which was uh, sales, sales management, fitness management, uh, general management, learning finance, marketing, accounting, leadership. Um, and I was with that company for a dozen years and uh, was in, a, in and out of six clubs in southern New England in various roles and became for them uh, someone that, uh, because I was relatively flexible, I could move. And so they'd send me to Waterbury, Connecticut to uh, this club struggling. Can you go spend a year there and, and fix it? Or, or we were opening up a new club in Newington, Connecticut. Can you go get that opening um, started? And uh, one of the clubs that uh, Health Tracks operated was in Saco, Maine. And it was their furthest north club at the time. And, and the model that they had used pretty successfully in some southern uh, really solid markets was struggling. Uh, the economy was doing some um, some challenging things, new uh, YMCAs and gyms were opening, so the competitive marketplace got different. Um, and their model, frankly, wasn't quite right for the more rural northern New England. Um, and so I came up here, and I say now that if I could read a balance sheet then the way I can now, I never would have come. <laughs> it was a club that was really in trouble. Uh, it was deep, deep in payables. It was uh, having a struggle paying its mortgage and making payroll. Um, and the, the structure of the, of the facility just wasn't working. Um, so I spent two years in crisis management uh, trying to fix it, um, but, you know, the ship had taken on too much water, um, and it wasn't going to be righted. And uh, I was uh, called into the attorney for the bank's office uh, one afternoon and handed foreclosure papers, uh, which for a 30-something kid um, who thought he could fix the world was a pretty eye-opening experience. Um, and... The evolution of that was that um, HealthTrax um, uh, was, um, was unable to support this club, although they had a lot of clubs doing very well in southern New England. This market just wasn't working. The bank, um, through the foreclosure process I had developed a good relationship with, offered to hire me to run the business while they found an owner. Um, and uh, so that, that showed me that they had a little bit of confidence in me. And uh, so I... I Took them up on that opportunity because their uh, health tracks was not in a growth mode and so there were no other clubs to go to. So for a few months, um, I operated the club under the guidance of a receiver, very humbling experience, um, and saw really the, you know, the, the worst side of business, um, which gave me some wonderful ideas. And one day I approached the bank and said, I'll buy it from you because they were having a difficult time selling it. Um, and they giggled at me and I said, no, really, I'll buy it from you. Um, if you'll finance it and, uh, and, and for the right price. And they giggled again, and then they asked what kind of personal guarantee I had. 
And when I told them, they giggled the third time. <laughs> and that was the beginning of, uh, of a couple months process of me finding a partner uh, and ending up buying this business from the bank. Having been in it for a couple of years, I had strong feelings about the shortcomings of the model and what this market could do, what things would work and what wouldn't work. And I say now that, you know, seven out of 10 of those things that I believed I would do differently if I owned the club. And, and for those folks listening who, uh, who are employees of an organization and they have those thoughts, if it was my business, I would fill in the blank. Um, about seven out of 10 times I was right. Um, and three out of 10 times I was really wrong. Um, but until you're there, you don't know which is right and wrong. And it ended up that the bank uh, sold, uh, sold the business to me and a partner. Um, and we were able to make some uh, pretty significant changes uh, to the business and started a really nice 14-year growth curve uh, with one major hiccup. Uh, a year into the business, we were the victim of an arsonist who, um, you know, picture this phone call at uh, 7.50 on a Sunday night in the middle of January when it's 12 below zero. Uh, Scott, your club is burning down. Uh, and... Uh, and then had to deal with insurance companies and banks and contractors and et cetera, et cetera, for a year. Um, and then uh, was able to rebuild and, um, and then great success. Within a year and a half, we had to do a major expansion. Within five years after that, we had to do another expansion. Um, uh, a couple years after that, we decided to uh, reach out into another community and open another, another center there. Um, which we eventually sold, uh, finding that I really enjoyed focusing on one facility and making it excellent as opposed to spreading my time between two facilities. Um, and that was 20 years ago that we bought the business. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. So there's the nickel tour of how I got here. Wow. Well, here, here's what's interesting about this. Scott and I are very similar in a lot of ways that uh, I don't think anybody realizes. And, and it's not that... Um, well, he's much more successful than I am. Um, I, I did not marry a cheerleader. I, I did not marry a cheerleader, so there is. I don't have that going for me. Um, I, I don't know how to play guitar. I couldn't. I couldn't probably play any, uh, even the opening uh, opening chords of uh, "Stairway to Heaven." Apparently, everybody knows how to do that. But what we do have in common is we both played soccer. And not only did we both play soccer, we both played goalie. So, uh, really, Scott. Yeah, I'm a goalie, and thus I also suffer from um, – uh, I'm a little bit crazy because that's what goalies have to be. And I will tell you an interesting story. I, I still play uh, pretty regularly in a competitive league, and uh, this weekend, uh, if you'll, you'll, you'll understand how terrible this feels, I got scored on directly off of a corner kick for the first time in my 25 years of playing soccer. A <laughs> uh, guy curved it over my head, and just we lost 3-2, to two, and that was the third goal. So I uh, I had I had that going for me this week. So probably we don't even have that in common anymore. So, yeah, funny. That being said, tell us tell us a little bit about uh, you know you you're involved in a lot of uh, you're a fitness freak from from what everybody tells us. Um, if you had to do one workout for the rest of your life, you can't change it up every day the same thing. What would it be? Oh, it would be a functional push pull workout, uh, body weight oriented. Um, I, frankly, I've been doing that for five, six years. Love it. Stick with it. it uh, it's, it's my staple. I'll, I'll branch out from there. But uh, for me, that gets everything. And my, my passion outside of this world and the soccer world, which I'm still active coaching in, is I'm a rock climber. And so, uh, you know, that, that thought of uh, finger strength and, and being able to pull up is uh, always uh, on the forefront of my mind. So 
Um, you know, functionality for fitness has always been important to me, not necessarily for look or body size, uh, but for the ability to do things, whether it's kick a soccer ball, dive and make a save, or climb a cliff. Um, for me, that's what it's about. So, uh, you know, push-pull, body-weight-oriented. Yeah, you were um, – so you were a professional rock climber or competitive rock climber? No, good, good close. I, I was a professional skier for a couple of years. Um, I skied on the World Pro Mogul Tour back in the mid-'80s. Um, but uh, rock climbing for me is – that's just a, that's a passion. I've been doing it since I was 13. It's the – it's the only place I found at 13 years old that I, you know, I, I think back then they didn't have a name for it. Now they call it ADD. Um, <laughs> but I was one of those kids that found an Outward Bound program, and it was the first time in my life that the world stopped moving, and I could be quiet and focus on one thing and feel totally comfortable on the side of a cliff. Um, and that's just evolved into a love for the mountains and, and a love of climbing, and, uh, and, and I've gotten a chance to do it all over the country with a lot of great people. And it's now as much a social thing as it is a physical thing. Um, but, uh, but no, 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 very few people get paid to climb. Mm. I think, I think the point is made well, Scott, that on top of the only thing we have in common is soccer. Cause I am not a professional <laughs> mogul skier or a rock climber. And my finger strength is, I can't even write anymore. I, I, I when I write a check, my hands start shaking uncontrollably because I, all I can do now is type. So I think your point is well made. We are not the same person. <laughs> I tried to make the connection there on a, on a personal level. It didn't work. Uh, fair enough. But you know, but Hussein, you're still playing in goal. I'm not anymore. So you're ahead of me there. Yeah. Well, I like I said uh, after after what I did on uh, on Sunday was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, yeah. I, it was really embarrassing, actually. It's uh, very embarrassing. Let it go and, and and move on. Yeah, we learned from our go. lessons. Shake it off. So, um, so hold on. Where did you fit in being a professional skier in trying to overturn six clubs all across the American oh, Northeast? Great. Yeah, I um. I took a couple year hiatus after college. You know, I um, I, I decided uh, I, I was I had I had aspirations to be a professional soccer player, um, and uh, unfortunately for me, the uh, the North American Soccer League, the NASL back then, folded my senior year in college. So any hopes of being drafted uh, faded away, and I was still in the mindset of being an athlete. So I just I hopped in a car and went to Colorado. And uh, and skied for a couple of years, and uh, you know, found myself with a group of guys who were great skiers, and and said, hey, you want to try this? And before you knew it, I was skiing all over Colorado and Utah and Wyoming, and 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 having a lot of fun, pounding the bumps. You know, it's so funny because so many of the people we've now interviewed, and we haven't done that many, but we're, you know, six or seven, and uh, so many of them, the story involves after college, I got in a car and headed out west. And yep. it's really interesting because you're, you know, um, I mean, where does, did you, were you an entrepreneur? I mean, did you know you were going to be start, eventually you would be in that position of running your own thing or did you just fall into Ab- that? Absolutely not. I think I fell into it. I, um, I you know, my parents were teachers. Um, I really didn't have business in my blood. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that I had planned on doing. I, I always loved serving whether it was uh you know camp counselor as a kid or a, a, you know being a bartender was the way i, I kind of paid the bills when i was traveling because you don't make enough a lot of money as a skier um and uh and in the fitness industry it was just a, it was a ball to help people um so i knew that was going to be a part of it and then um as i learned more and more and i you know i've learned so much more after school than in school about behavioral change, about how organizations structure, about how people choose to do what they choose to do. That's kind of my, 
it's fun for me to learn that. And, and as I learn more and more and, and hear stories and, and read great books and talk to people, um, these ideas start to evolve. And I find myself with this flaw or asset, I don't know, but in any organization that I'm involved with, I see ways to improve it or see ways that I think this organization or this entity could be improved. Um, and so as an employee of a company like HealthTrax, I kept seeing things that I thought could be better and could be different. And in many cases, the organization would embrace those and say, that's great, wonderful. And they, they'd add it. In many other cases, they couldn't um, or wouldn't or chose not to. Um, so, so there comes a time when you, you have those thoughts through your head that you, you finally say, you know, the only way I'm really going to know is if I take the leap. Um, and it was a big leap, um, you know, signing those personal guarantees and giving up a paycheck and, and, and rolling the dice, having just bought a house and had a child and, and all those things. But ultimately, that leap leads to the greatest reward, you know, which is the love of getting out of bed every morning and going to work um, and enjoying your job. And you get to reap the benefits, but you, you, know, you also have many sleepless nights wondering what if, what if, and am I doing everything I could? And um, so it, there's a balance to it. it. It's not all, you know, wine and roses, but um, no regrets. Uh, but the simple answer to your question, no, I didn't know I was going to be an entrepreneur until opportunity now. It sounds like, and again, after these six or seven interviews we've done, what's always interesting to me is that uh, I think a, what about this sort of this this group of uh, of the gym class heroes of fitness? I think what's interesting about all of them is that. Uh, when opportunity knocks, everyone listened and opened the door. And, and I think that's one of the big differentiators between people who uh, become successful and then, you know, people like me, you know, uh, <laughs> which I also don't ski or rock climb and I have no finger strength as we've already discovered. Um, but you're hard headed, though. Tell, uh, what's that? You're hard headed. I could give you that. I am hard headed. Yeah, uh, that is my strength. How? You know, you, so you've been you've been in the industry essentially now almost 30 years, yeah, um, yeah. and and been involved in fitness sort of as a quality of your life for for even longer than that. Um, how has how, where have you seen the biggest change in the health and fitness industry? And I, oh gosh, um, I, I see changes. I don't see one that jumps out to me as the change. I think that it, it all revolves around the evolution of fitness in the 80s being a kind of materialistic look good function and now it is a feel good be healthy function for the general population which is you know what tripled our market reach um, since the early late 70s early 80s when we started or when I started in this but I think that over over overrides all of the changes we've seen is this shift from you know um, fitness to look good to, to fitness to feel good and be good and be healthy um, how has that manifested itself in so many different ways I think you know I use this analogy for the evolution of the business part. You think about 15, 20 years ago, where did you go out to eat? And more often than not, the restaurants you were going to were restaurants that were locally owned and operated, owner in the store. Um, and now, so many, it's 99, Ruby Tuesdays, Chili's, Olive Garden, Bugaboo Creek, on and on and on. These you know, um, canned, duplicatable, um, yet very high quality and well-run um, companies that have found ways to grow. And I think that's, we see that shift in the fitness business where 90% of the operators in the 80s were independent club operators, and here we are, and I don't know what the percentage is, 
Um, but you know the, the LA fitnesses, the 24 hours, the light fitnesses, the planet fitnesses, the, all of the major um, uh, companies that have hundreds and hundreds of clubs, they're becoming duplicatable and they're becoming more commoditized. Um, uh, so that's one big shift. But on the same token, like in the restaurant industry, you've got a million pizza places and, uh, and breakfast houses and, um, and Thai restaurants. And in the fitness industry, we have yoga studios and CrossFit studios and Pilates studios and, and this kind of plethora of smaller studios that are, that are meeting very small niche needs. And I think it's very cool that we have both ends. Uh, what's really interesting is what's going to happen in the middle. Um, you know, for clubs, uh, the independent operators like me, like Blair, um, who are, um, are serving our markets the best we can. And you know, certainly we have the speed of change. We can adapt quicker than the larger entities, uh, but it also takes us a little longer to learn some lessons. They can use best practices. So I think it's going to be an interesting evolution uh, there. Um, and I think this, this concept of us being a better supporter of behavioral change and more outcomes-based as opposed to simply um, financially based. You know, in the old days, what was our attrition ratio? 60 plus percent was the average called the turnover ratio. And now I think we're doing better. We're probably as an industry closer to the 40s, but we are clubs in the 20s and the 30s and we're keeping members so much longer. We're, we're so much better at guiding people and supporting people through that behavioral change function. Uh, the hobbyists in fitness, the members who will work out rain or shine, here or there, um, those folks don't need a ton of support. They just want a, a nice environment and a good experience in the club. But for us to truly reach that group of people who knows exercise is good, knows they want the benefits of it, but doesn't know what to do, where to go, how to start, um, the, the behavioral skills, the motivation lacks. And so without a support system, those folks struggle. I think we're getting better and better at that. Um, but I think that's our biggest challenge as an industry is how can we reach that group of people? And, and part of that is going to be partnering with the medical community. We've, we've done a great job of starting that process, but I think we've just scratched the surface. Um, and, and the new uh, Health Care Act that's, that's coming in is, is going to change the way we work with companies and how companies help their employees or guide or motivate or incent their employees to, to exercise or live healthier lifestyles. Um, so those are the, the kind of the big mega changes that I've seen over the years. And, and if it's changed that much in the past 30 years, it's going to be pretty exciting to see how it changes in the next 20 or 30. You know, zeroing in on the, that independent idea, because obviously this is, uh, you know, this is iClubs, and, uh, that, which is about strategies for independent clubs. I'll remind people, November 20th through 22nd in San Diego, California, uh, where this is exactly what, what, what the conversation is about. What opportunities do you see or recommendations do you have for independent operators taking on the, 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 the larger chains, the bigger organizations? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Here's the simple answer. And, and for me, it, it, the answer to that evolves over, you know, 20 odd years. Um, but it has to do with defining who you are and what you value, what you believe, what makes you special and unique, creating a product built around that, and then finding the people in your community who also value that same thing. I think all too often we try to follow the next big uh, uh, trend. We, we, we see somebody doing something successful and we try and mimic it. And if it isn't in line with our beliefs and our values, and ultimately it's destined to fail. And I think where we really got much better at doing that was uh, three, four years ago when we went through 
the exercise of start with why based on Simon Sinek's work, where, where we as a team really went through a process of defining our beliefs, uh, our unique industry fitness-oriented beliefs, um, our values, who, who, who we, were we, why did we act the way we acted, and why did we choose to do the things we chose? Um, and, um, and then how, what are we special at? What, what do we uh, execute very well on a day-in and day-out basis? Um, and that helped us really put our energies into certain areas and decide not to put our energies into other areas. And I think for an independent club operator, if you're following the crowd, then you're going to be a step behind. But if you're, if you're following who you are and your asset base and your strengths, and you're finding a way to connect with the people who also value those same things, and you can grow something that's pretty special. Um, so it has to do with being true to your own belief systems and having the, the courage to, to kind of see it through um, and, and agree that sometimes there's things I shouldn't do. Um, I, I shouldn't add X or I shouldn't hire Y or that's a program that isn't going to work here. Um, so um, I mean, that's the biggest piece of advice that I could offer. When, when did you, um, I'm going through that kind of, uh, process with, with somebody like Simon Sinek. Um, would you say what came out of it was consistent with what you knew when you were standing in front of the, the bankers and they were giggling at you and you said, I, I know what I'm doing here. I know what this is going to be. Or, I mean, is that nugget always there and you just have to hone it or did it become something different? I mean, what was the void that you saw and who were you that you were, going to fit in differently? Going back to the uh, beginning. Great question. You know, I think, I, I think pieces of that nugget are always there, but evolving it, understanding it, and defining it are always a challenge. How do you bring it in, out in a way that not only you understand it, um, because founders of companies are great at storytelling. We, all, we have these wonderful pictures. We tend to be visuals, right? We have these great pictures of the future. We know what we want to create. And the real challenge becomes how do we communicate that to people, our staff or our key leaders in our company, who care enough and agree with you and can also see that, and then they can help pass that on to the frontline folks who are serving the members in a way that they can understand and comprehend and then find the customers to serve. So, you know, the, 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 I think the, the rough pictures are there um, and, and always fundamentally you, you feel, you know, I'll give you an example. We believe that working out together makes life great. You know, being together with people exercising. And if you think about it, most of us have experiences historically of doing things actively with other people, whether it's playing soccer on a sports team or going skiing with your family or, um, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, it was uh, dancing around a campfire or planting fields or farming or going to war. We as a species, we do things together. And so I think fundamentally we know that. Did I know 20 years ago that it was going to be all about group exercise and small group training and personal training? No, I didn't. But I knew it was about connecting people in an, in an environment that provided them energy um, and inspiration uh, to become better and help themselves grow. Um, so um, it's a combination of having this gut feeling of what it is I want to accomplish and then doing the due diligence to find the options and the hard work is really defining those thoughts into meaningful stories and meaningful phrases and, and, and transferable ideas 
that aren't just in my head, but are in the heads of the bankers, uh, in the heads of my leaders of the company, uh, in the heads of my frontline service providers, that my members, if asked, could define also. Um, that's the challenge, and we're still fighting that game every day. What was the first yeah. time that you that you were like, that's it? I, I, you know what? That's who that's who we are. Do you remember that moment? Uh, it was, it, yeah, it was in the, it was it was in a meeting with my leadership team where we took three ideas and we put them together. You know, the three ideas were. I mean, by the way, we had hundreds of ideas, but the process, the hard work was taking those 12 ideas and condensing it to one and taking those four ideas and throwing them away and, and taking those two and condensing them and then really coming up with these very specific thoughts. And those three for us were that, you know, we believe that people want to and need to live healthier, happier, more vital lives. So in there, there's senses of people have control, they have desire. Um, and, and then the second thought is we believe that movement is a foundational process to living a happier, healthier life. You know, every system in our body is designed around the assumption that we're strong, that we're fit, because for, you know, a million odd years, we needed to be strong and fit to live. And so that's an evolutionary assumption. And then the next is that we need meaningful face-to-face -face communication and meaningful interaction beyond home and work, that we're so connected these days digitally that we're missing this face-to-face um, experiencing things together with people beyond our family and our coworkers. And so we took those three thoughts and we put them together to this phrase of, you know, movement makes life good, but moving together makes it great. And when that happened in that meeting that day, the light bulbs went off, the fingers snapped, and we just, we as a team got it because we had condensed all those ideas into a phrase that we now knew, A, we understood, but B, we could explain and our staff could understand and explain it and, and our members would feel it. Uh, that was How many it. years in were you when that happened? That was three years ago. Oh, that was so that it took a long time to get there. Oh yeah. Oh okay. <laughs> and there was a lot of little little growth moments in in the process, but that was the moment. When I said, here's how we're really special, we, you know, just because we, we executed a lot of things really well um, and we followed industry trends really well. But that's the moment that we said, you know what, we, we got something good going forward. There's your why. Oh, you know, you know, what's interesting is uh, you're sort of a contradiction, Scott, as you hear as I'm hearing you talk and, and, and in a good way, quite frankly. Uh, on one hand, you talk about sort of as a species and understanding what moves humans um, and on the other hand. All of the things you did, uh, or a lot of the things you do, are very individualized. Uh, rock climbing, you know, you're by yourself out there, but what's interesting is once you climb one rock, the next person who follows you sort of can follow your same path. Um, skiing, again, same thing. You're going down the moguls, you're picking your path, you pick the right uh, where to go between and where to go over, and again, people can follow you after that. Uh, goalie. I mean, if nothing else, it's it's the one position on the field that's totally different than every other position on the field. But at the end of the day, you're the one who's in charge of of, uh, of sort of rallying defense, telling when the defense to get out, when to come back, uh, et cetera. So it's it's an interesting contradiction because you you are inherently an entrepreneur who understands that uh, the your success is also derived from other people being able to follow you and, and see your vision. So I think it's, a, it's, an intri it's, it's different than what a, a lot of people uh, we've interviewed so far have, have sort of talked about. Um, so kudos to you. And again, I'm nothing <laughs> like you. I just want to refer, I just want to say, say that one once again. <laughs> but uh, tell, me, tell, me, um, tell me a little bit about how you think, 
two questions. One, you talked about how the internet is sort of and technology separated people out and not brought them closer together. How do you think that's going to change? How is technology, how is the internet going to change our industry specifically over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years? Oh God, I wish I knew. Um, I, I can pontificate, but I, I, I think the, the the changes as I'm seeing them, which I, I'm sure will continue to evolve and most likely faster than they have, is that access to information is now limit almost limitless, uh, and transparency of businesses is becoming a kind of a new baseline. Um, people don't today judge us based on our ads and our direct mail pieces and our emails. Um, to some degree, maybe that contributes to it, but I think they judge us more, a new member, on our Yelp reviews, on our Facebook posts, on our uh, all the various messages that are done by our members or people who've had experiences with us. And I think that's how people are gauging businesses. I know we do it when we're going out to eat. You know, we're driving around the car and coming back from a soccer tournament and we're in some town we've never been in before and it's real easy. My wife pulls up the Yelp reviews and we choose where to go eat. Um, and I'm sure in the fitness business um, that you know we know now that nine out of ten people before they ever walk in the door have been on our website, and that some significant portion I couldn't tell you the number um, off the top of my head, but have also been to various uh, independent reviewing sites or or found ways to get input on us that was not based on material we created. So I think you know those iffy operators that that are um, are trying to hide things or be manipulative are going to be found out. Um, sooner or later, and I think we have to be perceived as givers, not takers. Um, and, and, and that, I think, will probably be the single greatest change. Others are going to be our ability down the road to customize services for members and customize workouts and give members access to their programs, plans. I hope there comes a day really soon where our success is managed by the outcomes of our members' behaviors in the clubs, not just by the dollars they pay us. Wouldn't it be cool to have ratios of weight loss or BMI change or lipid profile improvement or of, of your members before they joined and when they decided to, where they moved away or at some point in time when they're still a member? Um, so we would, our success would truly be measured on our ability to affect a member's life positively. Um, I think the Internet will probably provide us opportunities to do that. Um, you know, the way we communicate with people, um, we just um, we started one of these initiatives that uh, TRP is doing, which is um, um, it's an, uh, it identifies through our usage tracking how members are using and not using the club, and they've determined that at, at a certain point of non-usage, if we can reach out to that person electronically with a pre-written email, that we're going to guiding them back into the club, that we're going to increase usage. I now get two replies to those emails every single day, at least on average, of people thanking me personally for the email I sent them. Now, I'm not personally sending them this email. I wrote the letter, but the, um, but the system is sending out these automated responses to people who aren't using the club. Um, you know, this world of auto-response marketing um, and permission-based marketing is changing how we reach people, giving content, offering ideas, developing relationships before people ever choose to walk in your doors. Uh, that will grow. Um, you know, the ability to get feedback from members, the, the, you know, Blair's product, Medallia, um, this member experience management system, which allows our members to give us very detailed yet very simple feedback 
that gives us incredibly actionable material uh, as to how our members perceive us. In the old days, to send out a survey to ask people to fill this out, no one wanted to do that, but in a minute I can, I can answer yes or no or rate something one to ten. Um, and the data that that provides us allows us to make significant changes much quicker than we could to meet that member's expectation and measure their responses to those changes. So um, it's going to move faster. Um, um, members' expectations are going to be higher. They're going to judge us against uh, the rest of the world. We're going to be judged against the Bugaboo Creeks, the Hollisters, the Abercrombie and Finches. Um, and our physical plants need to be up to speed, and our, our, uh, our services are going to be judged against other services that are very high level. So, uh, and the Internet's going to connect people. It's going um, to keep people keeping us honest and keeping us providing a service that they value. So uh, it's going to help us dramatically, but it's going to make our jobs harder. Yeah, I mean, I wish my pontifications were as clear and concise as that. that, that uh, I think it's a really interesting take on that. Just to build on that, and real quick, but um, I think when you talk about the a lot of that reviewing and that usage of um, the internet where it plays a role and people know so much about your club before they even get there, and uh, when I was talking with, with Blair about you, he was talking about your focus on um, in treating your employees and how the way you treat your employees affects the customer experience. Um, real quick, just talk to me about your philosophies on on that sort of uh, synchronization between top-down to the customer experience? Yeah, um, I mean, it started a long, long time ago when HealthTrax taught me this concept of the upside-down pyramid. But, you know, the easiest way for me to sum it up is it's a, philosoph it's a philosophical um, a belief I have that I don't work, that, that they don't work for me, I work for them. Um, you know, my managers work for my front line. They're the ones who provide the service to my members. Um, and so my manager's job is to support my front line. My job is to support my managers um, and to give them what they need. So we've reversed this who works for who scenario. Um, and it really stems from, or at, at least the, the values part of our discussion um, and the, um, the actions part of our discussion when we went through that uh, start with why process. Um, help us understand that about ourselves, that we are, um, as, in, as members of this company, there's a quality we all shared, at least the people who we felt played a big role in our company that defined who we were. We all had this inherent need to serve. We couldn't not serve someone who is in need of service. We just, we, it, we get out of bed in the morning, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Can I, it, it was just pervasive among all of our staff. Um, and that became, in, in essence, you know, one of the things we now hire for. Are, are we a pay-it-forward company? Are we, do we have that mindset um, as employees to give to our members? Um, and so it's, it starts with the hiring process, and then it, it, it's built through our culture, which has evolved over time. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that my management team thinks and breathes and sleeps that way, and as a result, so does the front line. Excellent. Oh, your favorite questions? My ready? favorite questions. Um, so, scared. you know, we no, these don't be scared. You're, again, your pontification is much better than my well thought. There are no, so there are no right or wrong answers, but if your answers are off, it's horrible for everybody. <laughs> Just go ahead. Have, have a good time. If, have a good time. If you hear, if you hear a buzz, buzz sound, it means uh, somebody else has already answered. You have to give me another answer. <laughs> it's like the family. Drum roll. All right. So, the next thing we're going to do here is a little word association, Scott. Um, okay. I'm going to give you a word, and I just want you to tell me the first word that pops into your mind. Um, okay. 
just give you a couple of, uh, of things to food for thought before we go into this. Uh, I don't believe we've had a person go through it without saying, um, I don't believe we've had a person go through it without at least repeating one answer. Okay. And uh, our, we've had a couple of very interesting answers. We've actually had one person respond in Spanish. <laughs> so you've got a your 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 fellow uh, heroes are uh, are pretty uh, pretty impressive lot. But this is this one's really caught them up. So I'm going to give you about right. ten of them. I'm going to you just right. tell me the first word that pops into your mind. If you need to stretch or anything, now's the time to do it. <laughs> and you tell me when you're ready. Come on, bring it on. I'm, uh, All right. Why wait? First word, treadmill. Elliptical. Member. Client. Employee. Staff. Retention. Attrition. Diet. Crap. Exercise. Fun. Biggest loser. Winner. Spotting. Oh, there's my um. There's your um. <laughs> yeah. Um, help. Healthcare. Crisis. Technology. Opportunity. Nintendo Wii Fit. Competitor. Locker room. Needs renovation. Yeah. Gym <laughs> class. Um, oh, I have a concept in my head. It's not a word. <laughs> we Say need it. more of them. Yeah, we, need, we more. need more of them. Yeah. You, sir, have passed the gym class heroes, heroes of fitness uh, word association. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> the balloon should fall in your office right as we were speaking. Yeah. Excellent. I want confetti too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's on its way. The the truck the truck got stuck in uh, New Hampshire. Um, oh, funny. So uh, before we wrap up, I I we kind of breezed over something, and the last thing I do want to ask you about um, is it's seven. Uh, it's almost eight o'clock on a Sunday night, and you get a call that your uh, your your gym is burning down. Oh yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about this. So it's a year after we had bought the club. Um, we had a nice profitable year. Um, you know, as I said, seven out of the 10 things that I thought we should have done worked and worked well enough that we went from you know, that struggling business to uh, a nice profitable business with a little money in the bank. Um, and I, and this is you know, put in perspective, it's 20 plus years ago. So we're all in our thirties and, and teams back in those days were very tight. Um, really friendship based more than employee employer based. And I get a call from one of my staff, uh, who was a service desk guy who lived across the street and he said, Hey, hey Scott, the club's burning down. You got to get down here. And you know, my first response was, okay, they want to get me down to the club. There's going to be something going on. They're playing a joke on me or there's a party or, you know, I didn't even really consider it was real. And, um, and he said, I said, come on, what's going on? He says, no, really Scott, the, the club's on fire. It's, it's burning down. I said, Come on, what do you mean? He says, Scott, the flames are coming out of the windows. You gotta get down here. And so I said, okay, and I hung up the phone. And as I'm running out the door, it kind of dawned on me. I wonder if he even called 911. <laughs> he called me first. Mm -hmm. So I called 911. 
for two reasons. <laughs> One was, if he didn't, I would. But the second was to maybe confirm the story. So I called, has a fireman called in at 329 North Street? And he says, yes, it has. And my heart at that moment sank. I just, I literally, I could, I could, I could taste it. Um, and so in a day, hopped in the car, drove literally 90 to 100 miles an hour up the highway to get to the, um, and in my mind, I'm, I'm working through all the scenarios. Okay, there was a dishwasher that misfunctioned in the kitchen, and we'll be closed for a couple of weeks, and we'll be okay. Or, or we just put in this new system in the ceiling to heat, and it was a natural gas system, and uh, you know, so we'll be closed for a month, and we'll replace, and we'll be fine. And the club is about a three quarters of a mile off of the highway exit, and you can just barely see the roof from the highway before you take the exit. And I looked over, and I could see flames and the pile of smoke. Um, and uh, at that moment, I knew we weren't going to be open in a week or two. Um, and so I pull up, and you know the fire trucks are um, a block away. And I tell the fire guy that I'm uh, I'm the owner, and they let me through. And I get there, and I talk to the fire chief. I'm the owner. What do you need to know? And his he was real simple. Is there anything explosive in the building we need to deal with? And, and the flames were coming out the front. They were coming out the back. Um, and uh, uh, and I said, you know, beyond the propane, uh, which uh, tanks, which are over there, uh, no. I said, okay, great. And he got back to his work. And, uh, and then I sat and watched the club burn. And it was 12 below that night. And what I didn't know is that my ears and my nose were getting frostbitten um, until about 2 o'clock in the morning when the state fire marshal's office shows up and uh, asks me to come sit in their car, which they had at 90 degrees. And what I didn't know at the time was... 75% uh, of all fires are an, an attempted insurance fraud. So that moment of time, I was the prime suspect. Um, and then the interrogation began. And, uh, and I, I got caught off guard a bunch. I was, you know, half in shock. And, um, and I'm not the half, I was fully in shock. And, um, and then the next day, another interview. And what I found out later was they ruled me out pretty quick but they didn't tell me that for six months. And I, I joke now that I had hair before the fire. I don't have hair anymore, <laughs> or a lot of it. Something um, different the, between me and you, Scott. The, I have a full head. Yeah, there you go. You are the guy. Winner, winner. Um, winner, ding, 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 <laughs> balloons and confetti. Um, and, uh, and so began a one-year uh, process of learning um, and stress management. And the learning was that, first of all, Insurance does not work like small business, um, that the decisions about whether or not they're going to pay you are made four layers away from you by 10 old white-haired guys in a boardroom in Philadelphia somewhere, uh, and they're willing to spend $100,000 to $200,000 to save a million-plus-dollar claim. And so they have one objective and one objective only, which is to deny the claim, and if they can't do that, their job is to delay it. And, uh, and they have a real simple reason for doing that, which is if they delay the claim long enough that the bank will not reloan me the money to, uh, to rebuild, then they only have to pay me depreciated, replace, uh, depreciated cost of the business, not replacement cost, which would save them a huge amount of money. Um, and so we had to hire a team of lawyers and of insurance investigators that worked for us um, to come up with a strategy. And I was told up front that our best case scenario was going to be two years. And I said, that's not good enough because it, in that case, we can't rebuild. And uh, um, because it was, by the way, confirmed arson right off the bat. Um, we hired our own private, I was advised to hire a, a private investigator who, funny, two days later came in, looked at the scene, said, uh, oh yeah, that, 15 minutes later, he said, that's arson, uh, no, no question. I'll, I'll spend the day here and write you a nice report, but I can see four points of origin. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and, uh, uh, and we'll let you report. Um, so we, um, we went on, on the warpath. And the one thing that kept me going was I did spend an hour a day, every day, planning the new club. Taking all the lessons I learned from the 12 years that I've been in business and various clubs and saying, God, if I could, if this wing works out, wouldn't it be great too? And so we designed our new club. Um, and uh, had, to t had to roll the dice a couple times, um, you know, to, to force the insurance company to settle with us. I volunteered to take a polygraph and uh, under the condition that if I passed the polygraph, they would pay the claim and they would not let me take the polygraph. Interesting little tidbit about insurance companies. Um, we then um, came into a time crunch towards the end where for me to open the doors on the date the bank required me to open the doors, we needed to order the 25,000 square foot metal building um, a month, uh, three week, three and a half weeks before um, we knew whether we were going to settle the insurance claim or not. And so I had to make a decision to order uh, a building. <laughs> not knowing that I had the money to pay for it. Mm. And yeah, I had a few sleepless nights there. <laughs> knowing full well, by the way, that the downside on the other end was it would just be all sold uh, at auction or something. Mm -hmm. if, if, because I had, at that point, none of us had anything. It was all based on the insurance settlement or not. Um, but did have three sleepless uh, weeks. Um, but um, I don't think this could happen today. We built this club uh, from ground up and opened in 13 weeks. Um, and uh, the funny part about opening, there's a couple funny stories about day one, but the funniest was um, after probably three days of no sleep, getting things in order, we opened, we had pre-sold about a thousand memberships. And so we were jamming on day one. Um, and about an hour into the, to the day on day one, one of my members comes to me with a handful of paper towels that he used to wipe down the, uh, the equipment and says, where do I put this? <laughs> and, I looked, and I looked around and I realized that we didn't get any garbage cans <laughs> to open up on day one. So, uh, yeah, the little things uh, that get by when we're not sleeping. Uh, but the, you know, the end result was uh, I, I had a unique opportunity, as hard as it was, but I had a unique opportunity to design a club that felt right. And, you know, it was interesting that that was the beginning of this because the key concept that I that I used in designing this club was this concept that back then I called connection, which was I want this club visually and auditorily to be as connected as possible. So instead of the old traditional club where you, they'd take three racquetball courts and rip down the walls between and end up and create a basketball court, but you still had to walk through the little doors. I wanted those walls all knocked down. You could walk right on. And I wanted the service desk person to be able to A, serve food and beverage, B, overlook the cardio area, B, overlook the basketball area, C, oversee the, you know, be able to look through the windows to the childcare and, and, and have one staff person that could literally run the whole club. You know, we're in a small market. We need to have payroll um, uh, as a concern. And so can I create a club physically that requires less staff? Um, and gets people connected, getting you know, the energy on a treadmill overlooking the basketball court. How cool is that, right? Um, so how can we connect our members to each other and make it very comfortable to walk from point A to point B? Um, and that was kind of, that was the beginning of this concept of connection, hmm. um, which I've been fortunate enough to have great people like Rudy Fabiano help me develop and, and my, you know, from a physical plant standpoint and, and my staff develop from a programming standpoint. Um, but that was the fire. And, uh, you know, they, the hardest things um, to get through make you stronger, um, but they also create some of the greatest opportunities, and that's how we chose to use it. Two stories that I now know about Scott from, from – uh, two things I know about Scott from that story. One, uh, 
he can drive 90 miles per hour in the middle of a snowstorm in Maine, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. If you've never, if you live in D.C., we we get a heavy dew here, and everybody starts driving like maniacs. So, uh, congratulates on that. And then the second thing I think it's interesting is if that fire had occurred today, you wouldn't have gotten a phone call. You would have learned about it through a tweet. So, you know, just think about that for a second. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's how technology has changed. Did you get to the bottom? I mean, can you tell us the the story of arson? I mean, was it? I I can share with you that it was a staff person um, who, uh, it was a staff person who the police authorities believed was embezzling. um, And the dates um, of the the, um, fire were the middle of January, which was, and the next morning we were about to pass all of our financials over to the accountant for, you know, the beginning of the year-end financial Mm -hmm. review. Um, and so, uh, um, although that person was not convicted, um, the DA did not believe they had enough to um, uh, to uh, to win the case. Uh, they don't like starting cases; they don't believe they can win. Um, the you know karma does work out, and, and, and other challenges happen for that person. So, um, so it was uh, it, it it you know the the, the the parting comments on that process was this in, this person was. Our team member, um, and there were things going on with that team member we didn't know, um, and it changed the way I interacted with my team for a significant period of time. Um, it, I, uh, how many times have you heard this? I had trust issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I could trust an employee that much who would do that um, kind of thing to you, which is that just so totally devastating um, that changed my life forever. Um, that I had a difficult time for a long time um, trusting my staff uh, and, and, and finding that, that ability to get back to the real kind of relationships I like to have with my staff. And I, it took, frankly, about five years um, when I found, I, just, I found myself one day having a conversation with a staff person, um, and I could tell that I just didn't trust them. Um, and, and I said, I don't want people here I can't trust. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the beginning of me addressing that um, and, and doing a much better job of finding people that I believe I could trust, but letting go of this fear because one person in the, you know, the hundreds of people that I've worked with over the years, we had one person who, who, uh, who chose to act out in, in a certain way. I, I, that shouldn't taint me, my family, my interactions with my staff and my team. Um, but frankly, for five years it did. Um, and that was a hard process to get through. Uh, but like all processes on the other side, you're stronger for it. Excellent. Um, well, th- that is a, a heck of a way to end, and I'm, uh, <laughs> but I'm uh, appreciate the story, and I appreciate the fact that uh, uh, you came out of it strong, and that uh, you're doing strong, and you're, you've you've made an impact on this industry uh, because you're able to get through it, and uh, and we, uh, Jose and I, have uh, great thanks for you joining us today and sharing your story and that particular story and uh, and all your insights into the industry. This was a a real fun, uh, real fun interview. Uh, well, thank, thank you guys, and thanks Athletic Business and iClubs, um, you know, for the opportunity to do this. What you are doing in creating this kind of history of the industry, I think, is a is a very cool thing. It's not something you have to do, and uh, it, it kind of speaks to your commitment to the industry um, and desire to to give back to it. Um, and uh, I'm honored that you would speak to me about it. And uh, you know, all those challenges we talked about. Um, I, I, I hope I hope all the, the club operators out there kind of take that in the, into account, and, and we're all going to face them. Um, some are going to be easier, some are going to be harder, but every single one of them is an opportunity. 
Um, and on the other side of that opportunity, you get stronger and your team gets better and your product gets better. And, uh, you know, that if, if there's no, no other message than that that I could send today, then, uh, then it, it will be a great time that we spent together. And I, I had a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Excellent. Yeah, we absolutely enjoyed it. Well, this was a, uh, another episode of Gym Class, Heroes of Fitness, presented by Athletic Business Magazine and the iClubs Conference. Join us for great stories like this, great insights like this, great education, uh, and everything you need to know about being an independent club operator, November 20th through 22nd in San Diego, California. And you may just shake the hand of the great Irvin Magic Johnson. Uh, at the very least, I can promise you can shake the hand of the great Hossein Noshirvani and, uh, and see, how, see his beautiful head of hair and how that's still working for him. <laughs> but, but weak fingers, so you don't, I'm not going to crush anybody's hand. <laughs> exactly. Tread lightly. Uh, this has been Lee Kessler and Jose Noshirvani with Scott Gillespie. Thank you all, and have a great, great day. Till next time. This has been Gym Class, Heroes of Fitness.